for the memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 31, The Green Mile from 1999. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, with us tonight, we have who I'm describing, based on his letterbox review, a self-described Green Mile sobber. We have Mr. Dan Colon. Hello, Dan. <laughs> that is correct. What's up, guys? I have read online from your own words that no movie makes you cry quite like The Green Mile. Yeah, I didn't realize that until I rewatched this movie. I had always known that it was a tearjerker for me, but quite some time since the last time I watched it. And this time I sobbed to cried no fewer than four times. Wow. You are not alone, my friend. Uh, That is four more times than I did. As I like to say over here, Niagara Falls. Really? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. At what points? Like, I get the one, but like, what other points? Just all throughout different moments. I got caught up. I would say I ranged from sobbing to crying. I mostly sobbed. But like, for example, the scene with Patricia Clarkson, when she has her healing moment, you know, I sobbed through that. But like, by the end of this movie, I was ugly crying on my couch by myself. I mean, I think I even started when old Hank starts breaking down in the retirement home. I'm like, oh shit, like here it goes. Like I'm already starting. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something new, I think. We have, we don't think we've had old man Hanks yet, have we? Like a different actor playing him? Because you know, I tracked that through the years of uh, different actors playing, you know, different actors we following other actors playing them, you know, especially like Shia in Nymphomaniac and Cage in a couple movies and stuff. But I think this is the first time we have Hanks as not Hanks. It's funny how he's the young version in this. <laughs> yeah, in, in some research I did before recording, I learned that they wanted to use Tom Hanks and put him in old makeup, but it just didn't look right. So they recast him. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't. Uh, it's not the only thing that reminds me of A League of Their Own in this movie. There's another famous scene, I think. But it's like when Gina Davis, right, they used another woman as the older version of her character, yet they still did the, they used her voiceover they used gina davis's voice so at least they right i think it, it was good not to do any of that this time all right now before we get too much further into green mile or a league of their own again because i was reading about a baseball player and it's basically the guy a league of their own that i think a uh, jimmy fox jimmy dugan was based on so i was reading that this week so i have a lot of uh, a league of their own on the brain you guys are talking about it there but before we go further and talk about whatever mike for anybody who has not seen the three hour and eight minute green mile please let the people know what this movie is about okay so 1935 Louisiana. The Green Mile is death row, basically, and that's where our story takes place. Hanks runs it with a few other officers in there. You got Barry Pepper, we get David Morris, Jeff DeMunn. Uh, It's nice to see Barry Pepper back there from Saving Private Ryan. Anyway, as the story goes along, they are in charge of a new inmate, John Coffey, who is there because he had murdered two little girls. Mike, you forgot the most important thing, like the drink, but not spelled the same. Oh, I beg your pardon. M-O-O-N, that spells <laughs> coffee. That's all I kept thinking. Something's very, something is up with him. I'm not sure if he's got the shining, if he's got, if he's part of the beam. This is all sort of Stephen King terminology through his mythology, but he is very magical and he cures Hanks's urinary tract infection so he can go four times in one night with his wife, which he hasn't done since 2019. <laughs> I'm going to speed this up a little bit. The movie becomes about a mouse for a while, Mr. Jangles. We meet the other inmates, Edouard Delacroix, we meet uh, Percy Whitmore, the evil officer who comes onto the block. We have Sam Rockwell in an Oscar-worthy performance as Wild Bill Wharton, who is just like evil incarnate, who actually killed the girls that John Coffey was arrested for. You know, there's there's a lot of activity on the block that we'll get into, but ultimately, John Coffey, he and Hanks and the rest of the guards, they really form sort of this kinship, a friendship and an understanding. And I mean, by the end, they are very sad to see him go, but it is his time 
time, as he says. And it turns out that when we wrap back around, Tom Hanks is a spry 108 years old due to the magic that was passed on between him and John Coffey at one point. And he is still taking care of Mr. Jangles the Mouse, who has also acquired a longevity in life due to this magical interaction. And that is, uh, you know, kind of in a nutshell, the Green Mile. Uh, there's a lot going on in those three hours, but the gist of it is that. So this movie is a, like you mentioned, a Stephen King adaptation. It is a Frank Darabont Stephen King adaptation. He has made four movies, three Stephen King movies and The Majestic. I don't know how that happens, but that happens. Three also maybe the three best Stephen King adaptations? Is that is that up for debate? This Shawshank, Shawshank and The Mist. Three very good ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan has read the books before, so I want you to speak to that a little bit. But this, the interesting thing of note is that he releases as a serial as opposed to like one, I can't imagine, 600, 800,000 page book as Stephen King is wont to do. Yeah, so this was originally published as a six-part serial, about 100 pages a piece. The final installment's a little longer than that. But they were released about a month apart, so people would get 100 pages at a time, have to wait about a month to get the next part. Stephen King really enjoys that serial format. You know, I think he's just, he loves that old style. He's done it before with Gunslinger, and I want to say he's done it I mean, he definitely did it early in his career, writing for uh, mystery and horror horror magazines. So I think this was his his way to kind of throw it back a little bit and tell a story in a way that he hadn't done in quite a while. So yeah, originally uh, published as a serial and then it became collected as a novel. Personally, I think it, it reads better as a serial. The installments begin kind of with a little bit of a recap of what had already gone on. It's, I mean, it's, it's all told from the perspective of Paul Edgecombe. The Tom Hanks character. Yes. He's writing in a journal and he's recounting all of this, all of these experiences he had on E-Block in the prison. In the movie, he's telling the story to another woman at the nursing home. But in the in the books, he's he's writing it all down so as not to forget. You know, as he gets older, his memory starts to go. So this is his sort of therapeutic way to to keep all of those memories intact. And for the most part, like a lot of Darabont's, uh, like all of Darabont's King adaptations, this movie is incredibly faithful to source material. I couldn't really find a whole lot uh, of places where he strayed from from the book at all. There's like few uh, characters in the periphery who were cut out for obvious reasons. They don't really amount to much. But for the most part, this is, again, a really, really faithful adaptation, even down to certain lines of dialogue, which I thought were pretty funny. Well, then let's get right into it, Dan. What was your favorite part, whether it's something that's adapted well from the book that you loved in the book, or if it's something that's, you know, special or different about the movie? What was your favorite part about this adaptation of The Green Mile? So I think that, yeah, my favorite thing about this movie is probably how well Percy was adapted to the screen, which is tragic in in how that actor's career went. Doug Hutchinson. One of my notes was that he, his career was really such a waste. Well, what happened? The two things I know about him is that he was on Lost, and then he married Courtney Stodden when he was like forty five, and she was eighteen. That's him. Yeah, man. Yes. No way. Oh my God, he's amazing in this movie. Yeah. In the books, there's a moment where Paul is is talking about how in the nursing home he caught the movie Kiss of Death on. TV. In the movie, he catches Top Hat, which conjures other memories. But the 1947 film Kiss of Death... Not the Nicolas Cage Kiss of Death, apparently. That's the remake of the movie that Dan mentioned, yeah. Okay, okay. And and he specifically mentions that when he sees Richard Widmark's character in that push an old woman in a wheelchair down a flight of stairs, that to him was exactly Percy Whitmore. And I think Doug Hutchinson really like knocks this character out of the park. 
Everyone else has really brought their A-game to this movie, for sure. I think Hanks is incredible. But I think that for this one-off performance, Doug Hutchinson came out of nowhere and really nailed this character, in my opinion. Yeah, he is a uh, evil son of a bitch. Like, he almost reminds me of one of, like, the perfect Stephen King characters, in a way. In this movie in general, in this story, sort of. Like, I, I love how Stephen King it is without being too over-the-top and magic. I mean, it is magical, of course, but it, you know, there's no like killer clowns. Like it doesn't get like that. Like it's more of a, like on an adult level. I mean, I looked at the, at the timestamp, you know, it takes about an hour for anything magical to happen in this movie. You know, it, it is for all intents and purposes, a prison movie, much like Shawshank, except, you know, it's got these brief moments. I think there's three or four in total where the magic happens. They're brief, but man, do they make an impact? So I don't want to disrupt the flow of the podcast that we normally do, but when we're talking about the Percy character, the thing that drives me crazy about Stephen King adaptations, I've only read a handful of his books, and it's more of the recent ones, and I've loved some of them, I have not loved some of the other ones. But what frustrates me about the movies, like the It movies, and some parts of this, is that it really... I don't want to say bothers me, but I don't get anything out of the characters that are pure evil. Like, I don't enjoy, to any extent, the characters like the Sam Rockwell character or like the Percy character. Like, it just feels like his characters, at least when they're adapted for the screen, and maybe it's true to the book, maybe it's not, but so much of, like, Derry in It, everyone is either, like, 100% evil or 100% pure. And that's my biggest issue with a lot of Stephen King adaptations, because it just feels like, and maybe it's more nuanced in the book, or maybe it's true to the book, I don't know. And Dan, I'd be interested in your, you seem to say that, like, this is a pretty faithful adaptation, but it feels to me like it's not interesting to have somebody who's just pure evil because there's never a moment where you want to root for him. And I get the idea of wanting a villain, but he's just so terrible from start to finish and I get wanting to root against him and I get that his great performance but that's my least favorite thing about this and I, I will talk more about the other stuff later and everything but like it frustrates me how just black and white everyone is like John Coffey is interesting to me because he is this you know hulking behemoth of a man who we quickly learn is not what he appears to be and I think that he's an interesting dynamic character as such like the Percy character is just like a sniveling little weasel who is always harping on the same notes like I'm going to tell my daddy on you or like, I'm going to tell these people and you're going to be out of a job and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And like, screw you. And this is, I'm the best. And like, it's so consistent and like the performance is great. I don't want to, again, I don't, I want to say, I want to make sure that I don't discredit that. But at the same time, to me, that's boring. It's like, there's no dynamic there. It's just, he's evil. You're supposed to hate him. Cool. I get it. Why is he still on screen? It's interesting. Cause there was a point where I did think he was going to turn around. I've only seen this twice. And I thought, I think this movie is filled with parallels. And I think at a point you're supposed to think he is, is going to be the ultimate villain but then like Sam Rockwell shows up and sort of puts him in his and place. And the same thing there. Yeah, too. Like it's the same the same vibe I get. Yeah, it's like the dynamic though. Without that you wouldn't have John Coffey the way he was. Like he's pure good and like people may think to a certain degree that's kind of boring as well or even Hanks the way that he is so honorable and yet still cuts corners but you know for the right intentions and and I understand how that could be frustrating and I don't think Stephen King's entire oeuvre is filled with characters like that. Like there are levels and this is way more sort of on a base level, I think, you know, like I think it's death row. So we're going to get like pure evil people. But... Right. And I do want to say that, like, you know, I compared this to it, but like I like almost none of it. I wish that I liked it. I don't like the it movies. This I like most of this movie. So I'm I'm willing to give that credit. You know, like I don't these type of characters like draw me out of it. Like I don't mind them here. I just wish that like if they were more nuanced, if we got a sense of like why they were the way 
they were, other than just like their sadistic fucks. If they were more well-rounded, I would like think this is like maybe like a close to a perfect movie, but there's something there that's missing for me that doesn't click with me. I hear you. The last thing I'll just say is like, I think if you, if you're more into the greater King universe, there might be stuff you can bring to something like this, like I did to sort of help explain sort of people's motivations and things. Like when I see Sam Rockwell, I just think Randall Flagg and like that might not mean anything to a lot of people. But like, if you've read a lot of Stephen King and you're familiar with like the stand and stuff, you understand that character's influence and that you can sort of read deeper into this if you have more of like a back knowledge, I guess, of his works and stuff. But I also understand frustration of people just coming to it for the single movie as well. King is one of maybe my all-time favorite novelist and he really enjoys stories about pure good and pure evil facing off and then the story that he's telling is about the everyman caught in the middle of that the stand is very much a, a version of that story and i see that here and i don't think that in this particular story that john coffee being the you know the pure good character and we can say percy and wild bill are the the evil characters i don't think they're meant to be the most dynamic i know that you're looking for more dynamics in there, but I don't think that they're meant to be because we're following Paul Edgecombe's story. Right. He's the character who's being changed by this. Him and the other men that he works with on E-Block. They are the normal people who can't fathom how, you know, John Coffey could have this magical ability. They also have never really seen guys like Wild Bill before who just can't seem to be tamed. And no matter what they do, they can't rein Percy in. He's like a runaway train on his own mission. He's going to do whatever he wants and they can't stop him. To a lesser degree, you know, we definitely see Percy these true colors to a, a couple in a couple scenes he's ultimately a coward but i mean the story is about the guards on this block and i think that that's where you're going to see the most dynamics and those are the most interesting characters in this story right because we are meant to empathize with them right so i get your frustration maybe it's because i've read a lot of king that i don't see the flaws in characters like wild bill and percy and, and john coffee the way you do maybe just used to that sort of storytelling I want to give this movie the benefit of the doubt because, like you're saying, it's not about those characters. What bothers me a lot about the It movies is that, like, the kids we're following are all, like, 100% pure, and almost everyone else we encounter in the movie is just 100% evil. And, like, that just, it's such a boring, it's either one or the other extreme. Here, there is nuance. There are layered characters that Hanks can be kind of a gruff guy, but he can also be a really kind and tender guy. Like, I like almost all of the characters here. It just feels like when he's able, like, whether it's the stuff that's from the novel or the adaptation of the screenplay that like they're able to bring such three dimensions to the different characters and then to have these intentionally so like I get that intentionally so just pure evil it just it's boring to me and I'm not really upset about it because it's not about them like I totally agree with you there Dan like they're sort of peripheral for one reason or another but like I, just, I still wish that they were either somehow in it less like I wouldn't mind lifting some of their scenes out like I get that like they're evil and I think that the payoff like even if Sam Rockwell's in five minutes less that doesn't make the ending any less poignant that he's the one who killed the girl. You know what I mean? Like, we don't right. need to see him do five horrible things. We can see him do three horrible things, right? Like, I just wish that there was either less of them because it's not enjoyable to me or that they just had some kind of like, here's why they're terrible or something. Sure. I, I might agree with you if this movie wasn't three hours and eight minutes. I think that the, the length of this movie gives a lot of that stuff 
room to breathe because there's there there's so many plates spinning here there's so many like subplots and, and characters all have their own motivations and like i said the magical stuff doesn't even ha- come into play until about an hour in i hadn't remembered how much time was spent just on mr jingles in that first hour oh yeah it's like a whole movie just with him and uh delacroix and i'm glad you brought him up because i do want to say that mr jingles is my favorite part of this movie i love that deck <laughs> house. it's the best it's the and him and 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 michael jeter's performance i think is is, was my favorite part of this movie this time who plays Edward. And I think that's a that's a really great character in here too. He's sort of maybe more of what's lacking, right? Like you see how well behaved he can be, but then when Percy pisses his pants, you see that look in his eye and he just won't let it go. Like you can tell he he's done terrible things. And he feels like a way more nuanced character with a lot, you know, more going on. More of a gray area, right? As opposed to maybe John and Wild Bill or something. And I think that that's what makes him a little more interesting to me. I think that's why the actor has sort of more to explore there. There's more to chew, and he and he, it, it makes sort of his uh, rivalry there, you know, with Percy have more weight. And definitely, when he's executed, it's one of the most horrible things ever, like committed to celluloid. Like that is just horror. To expand on that a little bit, I think that across the board, this movie really excels with the casting. Uh, as much as I love King, and I think that this the story he is he wrote is exceptional i think that the casting here really made these characters come alive and made them more complex in a way that i don't think king could do on the page i love bonnie hunt in this movie you know like her character is not much of a character in this in the book but seeing her on screen with tom hanks they're one of my favorite on-screen couples i'm so jealous of of that relationship we haven't even really mentioned hanks yet the man himself but like seeing him in the first half of this movie suffer from the uti is just like you know i think it means more because it's hanks right like i i feel like he was perfectly cast for this role because there, i don't know if, if i necessarily come into it with a lot of empathy for his character you know like yeah he's kind of just this guy with a shit job basically and like you know he's just gonna do it by the numbers and stuff and it's really not until this encounter which is his last encounter on the mile that it like it really all kind of sinks in that there is like a, more of a meaning to it i guess but there's just something about having hanks there it being hanks and like the rest of this cast like you said like just a great ensemble when like james cromwell has to show up for a few minutes and like doesn't really have much to do and there's just little backstory about his wife but then like when we come to the end and actually healing his wife like it's be- i feel like it's because it's james cromwell right like that brings more weight to the character and because it's hanks like i'm bringing things about hanks to the role and stuff so i i hate to see him suffering and i want to see him uh successful and like all this kind of thing and stuff so i i totally agree like this is so well cast and sam rockwell i know he finally got an oscar but like his whole career is just an oscar man like he is just amazing it's funny that you mentioned Rockwell because I was watching this and I had to remind myself that in 1999, Sam Rockwell was not, you know, Sam Rockwell. And I think that's to the benefit of the character to watch it now over 10 years later, you know, I'm watching and I'm like, oh, hey, it's Sam Rockwell. And then the whole bait and switch you get with his character at the beginning of that, it's a little bit lost now if you've never seen this. But in the moment, I mean, I saw this movie in the theater. My grandmother took me, I think I was 12. And um, he's like a shot out of a uh, out of a gun, you know? Like, I had no idea what to expect from this guy. But, you know, yeah, in hindsight, we know it's Sam Rockwell and he's going to do something crazy. And Harry Dean Stanton showing up for a few minutes, right? Like, all of the small, Bill Sadler, I loved seeing him, like, all the small roles 
Jackson. So, Mike, I th- you said that your your favorite part is the the mouse and Michael Jeter, but also the uh, the casting in general, right? Is there anything else you wanted to point out in terms of your favorite moments? Yeah, I mean, well, like I think you saw in Letterbox, like I gave this movie five stars. Like I just was not expecting to be so overwhelmed by it. Basically, like it almost—I mean, I have a whole sort of newfound appreciation for the romantic comedy, right? But back in the day, you know, those used to sort of be referred to as like chick flicks, right? And like guy movies were like action flicks and stuff. But like this, to me, feels like what would have been referred to as like a guy's chick flick, almost, where it's just like I'm so emotionally wrapped up in this film for one reason or the other that like after watching it something is like it's like cathartic or something at least this time you know it's only the second time i've seen it right and it, and it's a watch so like it's it's like i went through something almost i don't know if it's as much of a guy chick flick as the shawshank redemption like that's a total like bro romance but i definitely agree with that sentiment for sure this is definitely one of those types of movies you know as we transition from what we liked to what we didn't like. I do want to go back to what I didn't like, and I do want to give credit to the the pure good versus pure evil thing. I think that there's something here that even though I don't like those dynamics as I talked about, there's something nice I just remembered in my notes is that like when Sam Rockwell grabs John Coffey's arm and there's like the transfer of power or something, like it's not exactly clear what's happening. And like you mentioned in the description, there is like maybe it's the shining, maybe it's something like there's something at play here with John Coffey. I think that there's something interesting about that dynamic, about like the physical pass through of pure good to pure evil or pure evil to pure good like i think that's something interesting that i know you can't maybe fully explore because like how would you explore that because i think it's better left undescribed but as much as i don't like that dynamic and that is my least favorite part of the movie i do like that moment where it's like oh there's more here and it's almost like heat against cold like he just it's so uncomfortable just to the touch because like they're so polar opposites i thought that was a really nice uh nice touch there yeah, I do like how John is like this conduit and he feels things that he doesn't even touch. And then when someone like Wild Bill touches him, it's like power overload almost or something. And I think maybe that's when he gets the idea that he's going to sort of save all of that, whatever he takes back from Patricia Clarkson, right? To like cure her. I think that's when he gets the idea to hold on to it till he gets back to the prison because he's like, yeah, some way Wild Bill's got to go. Like this guy cannot, he's got to go before he he's even going to be executed like somehow it's got to go sooner than later yeah i mean it's like i'm sort of surprised that they don't do any they don't intervene but it's also like that's the oh yeah this is this is bad like things are bad like this isn't things are bad here so mike what about you what is there something about this that i know you i know you mentioned you gave it five stars in the letterbox there's something about this that you don't like what's your least favorite part of uh, the green mile yeah it's tough i mean i think it mostly i think it just mostly comes down to like i don't like it because it's like a, just a brutal thing to watch like when delacroix gets executed like that that didn't really need to be be that graphic like things like that you know like i mean it's there because it's like super well done of course and like probably very realistic but that's something i really didn't need to see you know it really drives the point home i think the stuff you know as much as i've been going on a bit about how well they pulled it off i think the stuff with melinda with patricia clarkson as the wife like isn't really sort of for the three-hour movie they don't really spend as much time as i was expecting with james cromwell and his wife and stuff you know if they're supposed to be friends and they don't really have much of a social life at all in in, in this area and so it's really nothing like 
it's nothing more than that, really. You know what I'm saying? Like, I do really love the way this movie comes together. As Dan said earlier, lots of plates spinning in the air. And I really feel like uh, none of them crash to the ground and break. I mean, maybe there's like a, a chip in one of them, uh, but that's about it. Yeah, there is a lot going on here. And I think that it is balanced really exceptionally well. I would agree that there's very few missteps. I mean, aside from my personal preference of what I keep harping on over and over again, like the balance between stories, between storylines, between characters, between time, even like, you know, in the beginning, I'm like, why are we still in the nursing home for 15, 20 minutes? And then I'm like, oh, we kind of need to establish that because we're going to come back to it in the end, right? So like everything is sort of done specifically for a reason. And I think it's done very, very well. And you're right. The ball's not really dropped in uh, in any regard, I don't think. No, I think maybe the movie, the moments are, there's like one or two moments where it just calls too much attention to itself as a movie. Like when they're breaking John out of prison, like it's so well done. And like we mentioned, like Sam Rockwell grabs him out of nowhere and he's supposed to be sedated. But then they're like running across the yard and like dodging the spotlight and it's just like kind of goofy and then like when Percy gets put in the asylum they play like this really goofy music as if to say all right that's wrapped up like end of Percy's story it's almost like these little like buttons that don't really need to be in certain moments I guess but that's it and Dan what about you what about this movie does does not work for you is there something about this that you don't like your least favorite part of the Green Mile yeah I've got that I think just to address a little bit of what you guys were talking about I so much love this cat that I find myself just enjoying a lot of these moments that some may find unnecessary. I know this movie is over three hours and um, it is a a pretty hefty time commitment, but I I gotta say, I just watched this the other day and I wasn't bored at all by any of it. I think that it moves pretty quickly. It's got a very even pace and it's always interesting to watch in my opinion. Like even those small moments with Bonnie Hunt, you know, unnecessary they may be, you could definitely make that case. I just enjoy those human moments. It could be that I've got some experience as an actor under my belt. So I appreciate just like those intimate moments that don't necessarily drive the plot forward, but you know, just make these characters a little more human, right? So I enjoy all of that. But if, if I have to take one thing away from this movie, because I did give it four and a half out of five stars, I think that it gets a little bit too... Preachy is not the right word. I, I'm struggling to find it. But in the end, you know, when Michael Clark Duncan has his whole speech about how this is the way things are every day all over the world, it gets a little bit heavy-handed with its message and I don't necessarily need to be beat over the head with that and I think that's a little bit King's fault not so much Frank Darabont though he may be partially to blame for that as well I yeah I just find the theme of this movie to be a little bit overt and and I don't think it's necessary theme as in you want to elaborate on that a little bit like the like the racism elements not necessarily that just that like john coffee has been around for a long time and people are terrible everywhere and when he shows tom hanks paul edgecombe he passes on his version of what happened or you know the, the when he touches him to make that point that you know people are terrible everywhere i'm like okay yeah i get it you know like that it's almost like they're stating this, the thesis in that final moment and i don't necessarily need it spelled out to me that way i hear what you're saying it's tough though because you almost need this moment with john at the end where he has like his moment of clarity because the whole movie he's just scared shitless right and like kind of can't really communicate you know he's a man of very very few words and it's not until like he knows that he can finally rest that it sort of seems like he's got his wits back and he is a very simple man and so like i feel like yeah he would have a very simple message and it would be very as clear 
to follow as possible. And technically this movie is 1935, right? It takes place in 35 in the South. And so like, I feel like uh, at the time, like this is fine for the time that the movie takes place. But in 1999, it is sort of like too, I don't want to say too Hollywood, but maybe too sort of like old school Hollywood at that moment. Like it's riding such a nice line of being a period piece, but also feeling very modern and fresh and sort of nineties and, and like made it very extremely well. And then it gets to that moment and it's like, wait a minute, is this movie made in 1935 all of a sudden? Like what kind of happened there? So I understand where you're coming from. For as long as this movie is, it never really stops being an intimate story because you know this cast of characters that like even though there's what maybe like 10 to 15 characters in this movie it's all set for the most part in within e-block and a few other locations so it feels very small and 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 intimate but then you've got this message that that John Coffey is presenting at the end that expands to the rest of the world. And suddenly it's not an intimate story anymore, you know? And it just, it felt a little bit strange, but I I understand, I understand what you're saying. And I don't know if there would have been a better way to do it, but I think it's just a little more sentimental maybe than I had hoped for. But again, John Coffey is an uncomplicated hero character. So, you know, maybe that just comes with the territory. Yeah, good point. Do you guys think that Paul took all that in the right way like because i mean he did he did end up quitting this job but he just he stayed sort of in correctionals and right it says that like he went to work for like boys youth center or something like that like i pictured him like traveling like like that early hulk tv show or even like what was that highway to heaven where he would go like town to town working on different miles like learning different lessons and there would be a series of him i feel like he learns enough lessons here to hold him over for a long time like i feel like that would have expanded the one thing i really don't care for in this movie and made it like even worse like i kind of like that he doesn't do that and he ends up kind of just dealing with it internally for 108 or not 108 years but for the the bulk of that 108 years you know and he he ends up in a nursing home and he's you know taking care of people there Kind of. So, yeah, I think that if they had gone in that route, I would have disliked it way more. But I mean, this is a minor gripe for this movie. I love so much of it that, you know, it's just if I have to find something to pick on, that's kind of it. Do you think it's fair that he's basically, I guess, immortal, but has to age like that seems that seems shitty. I kind of like this type of because he's not immortal. You know what I'm saying? He's just got extended life, right? So his life expectancy is maybe doubled is the way I thought of it. So maybe almost double because he's like 40 something when he gets the touch. And when we meet him, he's like 108 or so. So he probably is going to live to be like 150 or maybe 140. So I think they gave him like an extra 100 years or so. You've got to consider that whatever John Coffey passed on to Mr. Jingles extended a mouse's life for that for about 70 years like what's that going to do to a human being whose life expectancy is far longer than that right so i mean it just it just seems unfair that like i mean he's a spry 108 year old but still like he's not still tom hanks you know what i mean like he aged dramatically and like what happened to bonnie hunt like it's not like you know that's that's tough right they did establish that you know whatever this magical ability is it is not immortality you know john coffee he does die he is capable of being killed So I think it's reasonable to assume that one could age 
physically. Yeah, yeah. I think the idea was it's not because he, it's not when he cures you, it's because he showed him the vision, right? And it's because he, like, shocked Mr. Jangles during the execution. Like, it was different moments. So, like, when he cured Patricia Clarkson, right, like, that didn't extend her, that didn't supernaturally extend her life past her regular life. You know what I'm saying? Like, she's going to live on for a little while but i feel like because he sort of gave him this vision he had to transfer part of himself but yeah i don't know it does kind of suck i i didn't think he was going to live that much longer you know i thought we saw jangles take his last breath at the end of this movie so i figured his would be soon i don't know, I don't know. it kind of does end on like a very downbeat though right he's like i am a monster he's like i have to witness all of this death he's like i've been gifted this life but it is a curse the end i was like whoa okay Oh boy, that's a heavy cross to bear. Some other notes that I made from this movie. I remembered very, very, very little about this movie since I watched it for the first time maybe like a decade ago, but I did remember... What's, okay, so what's weird is that I remembered that they didn't wet the sponge. Like, I remembered that part of it, but I did not remember the extent to which that impacts things, right? Like, that, I was just like, oh, I remember what happens here. I was like, oh wait, no, I don't remember what happens here at all, apparently. It is some ghastly, like, horror film shit. Like, just over-the-top, like, 80s-style almost like these like crazy intense blue flames and it's crazy it's it's i was like how do i remember the one thing but not like what that one thing leads to well i must have blocked some of that out too because i knew what was going to happen to him but i did not expect I didn't remember it going on that far and then yelling about the smell and then I started gagging and I was like, oh, dear Lord. Like, that is... I mean, Darabont is one hell of a director. I remembered quite a bit of it, but I think that I had forgotten about how brutal the actual electrocution is. Like, I remember it vomit on the floor and, and all of that, but, like, just seeing him being electrocuted, that visual, I had totally forgotten. And that that kind of struck me as, as a little bit extreme. That entry into the serial actually has my favorite of the titles that one's called uh the bad death of edward delacroix and um god damn if that doesn't live up to that title i will say that the uh the special effects there i i thought were pretty cool the special effects that did not age well 20 years later are the uh death flies or the illness flies or whatever thing like that it's almost like i watched so much of the x-files this happened in the in the run of that and, like even early x-files effects were usually better than this right like I, I don't know why i don't know why they tried to get maybe just too computer fancy with it but it just seems like the technology was not there not that it really took me out of it too much but i was just like oh this does not really look great it just uh you know for everything else is so specific to the time and the era and the place and even like the crazy death of edward delacroix like all of that is still pretty good and then the flies are just like oh this is not great yeah, I even noticed Mr. Jingle's CGI was a little bit dodgy. But at the same time, they really don't have a whole lot of CG effects shots in this movie. Right, which I think is why it stands out more, maybe, right? Because there's not anything else like that. Possibly. Yeah, because, like, you know, Mr. Jingle's is like, you know, Mouse Hunt, which is great. You know, I think that whole movie's a CGI mouse or something. And I think he comes off fine because of all the interaction that he does with or that the characters are doing with real mouse the death flies is something that seems like it would be an easy effect at the time right it's just like this quick little particle effect kind of thingy but like yeah it just did not age well but i'm sure at the time was like perfectly acceptable but there's some way that i feel like they could have done that practically and gotten away with it with like dust or or something and they do something kind of similar in dr sleep where they suck the steam out of people like i feel like they could have changed it to a mist or a smoke or, or something like that and had the same sort of effect but you know we made a lot of 
uh, especially Mike, you were mentioning earlier a lot of the people who were back from other movies and the, the supporting cast of characters. We did not mention Gary Sinise back for his third Tom Hanks movie, very briefly, but he's in this movie very briefly. In terms of going back, in terms of Tom Hanks movies, we have, like I said before, an old man actor playing Hanks. I think this might be the earliest movie, the earliest time period that Tom Hanks is in. I was trying to think of like which ones there are, and I realize he's been in a lot. Every time we say goodbye, is like World War II, League of Their Own is World War II, Saving Private Ryan is World War II, Apollo 13 is the sixth. 60s, that thing you do is the 60s. Like, he's been back in time a lot, but I don't think we've gone back as far as 1935 before, have we? What period of time is Road to Perdition? I don't know, but we haven't gotten there yet. But you just jogged my memory. You said League of Their Own. Do you know what this movie has in common with A League of Their Own? Well, that was my last and final note before I get to the trivia, is that there is a, in kind of reversal of fortune, Tom Hanks cannot piss in this movie. In a career full of just him urinating and talking about urination in, like, every movie, he is unable to do so here. Just there's that long, long pee scene in A League of Their Own. There's him talking to the president in Forrest Gump. And there's a couple other scenes, I feel like, where he's just peeing or talking about peeing. But here, it's, I was like, oh, it's, a, it's the anti-Hanks. But then he finally relieves himself at one moment, right? And I want to like line that up with the League of Their Own when he busts into the <laughs> locker room to relieve himself and see which one is longer because he has to hold the record for longest leak in a major motion picture. And that is quite a title. And if I ever meet him in person, <laughs> I was going to say hello, Pardu, a holy man, and ask him to juggle. But now I'm going to congratulate him on, on holding that record if that, if that indeed is true. <laughs> This movie was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Picture, which it lost to American Beauty, Best Supporting Actor, Michael Clark Duncan, which lost to your boy, Michael Caine, in your movie, Cider House Rules, Best Adapted Screenplay, lost to Cider House Rules, and Best Sound, lost to The Matrix. So, you know, that's that's appropriate. So some trivia, Stephen King called this film the single most faithful adaptation of his work, which is... More than the Langoliers? Man, the Langoliers. <laughs> that, that dual VHS copy, loved it. Loved it. With Balky. I love that. Just Bronson Pinchot. Tom Hanks accepted the role of Paul Edgecombe as a favorite of Frank Darabont because he had to turn down the Andy Dufresne role in Shawshank to play Forrest Gump. This, I don't know where this came from, but Tom Hanks treated the entire crew to a meal every Friday night on set, so that's very kind of him. Uh, Michael Clark Duncan was the soul of the cast, according to a producer, and Tom Hanks cried when Michael Clark Duncan rapped shooting. Uh, Tom Hanks apparently stayed in character when Stephen King visited the set, and Stephen King asked if he wanted to sit in Old Sparky, which they called the electric chair, and he said no, because he was in charge of the block, so I think that's a weird kind of bit of uh, method acting that I don't think we've seen so far from Tom Hanks, at least we've heard about, you know what I mean? They wanted to cast Hanks as the or have him play the old man too, but the makeup effects just did not work. So they re they cast Dabs Greer instead. And I think this was his final movie. I think he died relatively shortly after this movie came out. Nowadays they would have definitely done like the old aging, like Captain America aging or something like reversed sort of Irishman kind of makeup that they do these days. Digital makeup. Tom Hanks said this movie is about quote great myths that communicate the complexities of being a human, which feels a very flowery way of saying like it's difficult being a person, kind of, right? Like, it's just like, living <laughs> is tough. <laughs> In Doctor Sleep, you mentioned Doctor Sleep before, Mike, which, if people don't know, is a, as a sequel to The Shining. Danny Torrance senses someone's dying and experiences as insects and flies in the same way that flies come out of John Coffey's mouth when he heals people. In Doctor Sleep, Danny even speaks Percy's line, dead man walking. Also in Doctor Sleep, flies portend something bad about to happen, such as before Percy is institutionalized. Nice. That's some of that interconnection between the King universe. That's some real Castle Rock stuff right there. And the only other trivia that I have here 
is the actors who were almost in parts. Uh, Jennifer Lopez turned down the Melinda Moore's role, who is the uh, the brain tumor woman, which I, I don't see that. Shaquille O'Neal was considered for the role of John Coffey, which I get because if he wants to be like a mountain of a man, right? Josh Brolin auditioned for the role of Wild Bill Wharton, which would obviously go to Sam Rockwell. And then the final part is for the Paul Edgecombe role. Uh, John Travolta was offered it, but turned it down. And Michael Keaton and Michael Douglas were both considered, uh, but obviously it went to Tom Hanks, which is why we're talking about it tonight. Yeah, I could not see Travolta. Sorry, Travolta. Well, could you see Tom Cruise? Do you think Tom Cruise could play the role of Paul Edgecombe, or if not, Paul Edgecombe, or if not, uh, what role could Tom Cruise play in this movie? Because there, there are plenty of dudes in this movie. Well, talk about someone who could nail the Wild Bill role. I think he would be crazy as, I mean, you know, he's he's too old, I think, to do Wild Bill at this point. But, but you know, I, I'd never seen him, you never really see him that unhinged. And I feel like he could get there real quickly and real easily and sort of sustain that energy for a really long time. I mean, I also feel like he could play the Hanks role. Like I was saying earlier, like, I just feel like, you know, Hanks you know, part of it for me is, you know, it's Hanks. At this point, I think that's a lot of his movies, and I think that's good. I, I like that about it, but, like, yeah, I think you just bring a different energy to that role. Uh, too intense, maybe. Dan, what about you? What do you think? I think that this character requires a bit of softness to them, and I think Hanks is perfect for that. We're so used to Hanks being so likable and friendly in, in so many movies, and in rewatching this, I was reminded of just how well he can command authority when he has to but i think inherently this character needs to have that softer edge for some of these more important scenes and i just don't know that cruz is the guy for that i mean it's been so long since he's done something other than an action movie of some sort so it's it, it can be difficult for me to envision young tom cruise but even then he'd be maybe too young for this role so i mean i'm gonna say no i don't think he has the the dynamics to pull this character off at least not as good as tom hanks does i think we're at an interesting point in tom cruise's career in 1999 where like it almost like five years six years earlier like when we're talking like the firm even like from like 93 to 96 mike i think like the firm through like jerry Maguire, i think i could kind of see it so i think he was kind of doing different things and i feel like you know as we sort of talked about when mission impossible comes around he he enters a new stratosphere right and like it's sort of he's i mean we're currently as we're recording this you know the the, the episodes of cruise club that are releasing kind of concurrently with this one he's in a very very weird stretch of his career right where it's like you know he's playing a nazi he's playing marco rubio essentially he's not doing action movies really he's doing all sorts of different things and so he's been non-action star cruise at different phases in his career but i feel like around this time even though in 99 when he did magnolia and eyes wide shut like i, I don't know that this is in that i think he could do it because i still am firmly of the belief that he could do any kind of role but i also don't know that it's necessary i don't know that he would do it as well because i do think dan was the one who said it that like there's a softness to paul edgecombe that like cruise has embodied but normally doesn't and i think as we talk about in different episodes that we do mike where you kind of cast one of these guys and it's sort of a shortcut into I know what type of character it is because it's the type of character that Tom Cruise is playing and you can either lean into that or subvert it but I feel like you don't get the benefits either way with a character like this it's just like oh it's just this is something different I don't it, it almost throws you for a loop right and like he could do it but I don't know that it necessarily is as effective as if Tom Hanks was in the role as he is I almost feel like you know who knows but I almost feel like he wouldn't do this kind of role like it just doesn't feel like you know as far as his sort of 
things are going at this time that interesting. Like, it doesn't feel like stretching enough, like, for, at least from what we've been seeing the last few films, you know? Like you said, like, he played a disfigured Nazi. He played, like, this... He was behind all this makeup in the last couple of roles and stuff. And so maybe he'd be more of a Percy at this point in his career and be able to, like, really kill that. But I also like what I got for that role. So, yeah, maybe just not involved. So now an equally important question, and I I don't know the answer to this really. Does Tom Hanks in this movie do anything? I think the answer is probably no, which is a good thing. Does he do anything to jeopardize his role as America's dad? Dan, I don't know if you've been on since we've basically twisted the question a little bit. We used to ask if he did anything to set him on the path to becoming America's dad, but I feel like we realized five or six movies ago now that he is firmly, officially America's dad. Uh, so we want to see now if he's doing anything to like break him from that. And I feel like, you know, he's a kind, gentle, patient, but still can be stern or strict prison guard. And I feel like he's kind of a father figure to both the inmates and the other guards to a certain extent. Yeah, I don't think he does anything to dethrone him from that title. But I will say that anytime I hear Tom Hanks drop an F-bomb, it's a little bit jarring to me at first. And he definitely does that here. So I think that that, I mean, not to say he doesn't do it well or or that it's unconvincing, but because I'm so used to Tom Hanks seeing him in a, in a certain light, right. that seeing him, again, command authority here and drop F-bombs, he's a prison guard, right? So he's playing the character and he's doing it well. But me as an audience member, I see Tom Hanks, I don't expect F-bombs to come out of his mouth. And then I hear them and it's so off-putting. So uh, that's the worst I could say, really. Yeah. And I mean, even even the best dads still curse from time to time, right? So I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. You know, yeah. All right. I think. <laughs> I mean, uh, his son, his son is Chet Hanks, right? Oh so one's going to slip <laughs> up from time to time. Before we nominate this for some awards, is there any other final thoughts about The Green Mile, good, bad, or otherwise? There was one thing that really made me laugh out loud, and it was quite early. And, you know, this is when Hanks is having trouble with the UTI and stuff. And so, like, he gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and he has to go out back to the outhouse. Yeah, what's up with that? Oh, well, because it's the 30s, you know? Like, there's no... But when was indoor plumbing a thing? Maybe in a big city or something, but like down in the where they are in Louisiana. Oh, uh, true, like, and, they, and they do make a point that like he lives out in the middle of nowhere in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I thought that was great. He he like collapses halfway to the outhouse, um, and then I think there, if I'm not mistaken, the the toilet is actually called the water closet at the prison. So I love all those little details. And Dan, what about you? Any other thoughts about the Green Mile before we give this some awards? No, I think we pretty much covered it. As far as Frank Darabont's prison-based Stephen King adaptations go, I don't know that I love this more than the Shawshank Redemption, but it definitely hits me in, in the feels a lot harder than Shawshank does. But I love both. I think that if uh, Frank Darabont just wanted to make more prison movies, I'd be okay with this movie's great. Yeah. And prison movies as a genre, if that's even, if you can consider it a genre, very underrated, I feel like. Often great. Are there more Stephen King prison stories to be told here that, that Darabont can sort of, I guess, come out of retirement to do? I don't know what he's up to. One thing, I mean, it's not really a full prison book, but like the first, like what frustrates me about the the Outsider miniseries, limited series on HBO, is that like the first third of that is kind of like a, a police procedural. And there's a lot of, you know, Coach Terry in prison. and Like, you know, basically the premise of the whole 
whole the big thing that happens in the show happens 200 pages into a 600 page book and like the first third of it is kind of like transcripts and police blotter and like it's very cool and like it's it's like a cop show almost and then it sort of evolves that's kind of king's thing in the past i don't know maybe 10 years or so i mean he wrote mr mercedes which was the beginning of a three-part you know cop story it's more of a mystery than it is anything else i don't even think i would classify it right and then we get holly gibney going from that universe into the outsider universe right so i think that that's just kind of the 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 track he's on right now is telling cop stories not necessarily prison stories gotcha okay well that makes sense because also what really interested me and i also read because it's just fresh in my mind i read this year uh the institute which i think is his book from last year probably so what frustrated me about that is that it's about a without spoiling more about it but it's about an institute of kids who are collected who have some kind of psychic abilities it's told from their perspective and you don't really know what what's going on but things are sort of amiss right because they're like abducted and taken or whatever but the book starts out with like 60 or 80 or 100 pages of this former police officer who was like who had like a an unfortunate thing happened to him in florida and so he was let go and then he's making his way up the coast and like it's like this great like you were saying earlier dan like this every everyday man you know in this world of black and white like he's just an everyday he's just a normal guy and i'm like this is a cool story i'm into this character then it becomes a a book about a bunch of kids and then by the time you finally get back to the guy at the end i don't care anymore like i feel like to your point that stephen king is all about like cop stories like it feels like that's definitely true of the the two books that i've read from the last two or three years or whatever but i think he does them well i think that they're really fascinating it's just when they stray from that when they get a little bit more supernatural they sort of change the protagonist then i'm not really on board but this is not a stephen king podcast it's a tom hanks podcast so i apologize for that deviation but let us nominate this for some awards best film worst film i think we got to go best film right for sure all right best role yes or no i feel like in a movie where he's really good i don't know that this is like i don't know that it's him i don't know i feel like this movie is more of a sum of its parts than like hank's sort of like carrying it even though you know he's the lead clearly if you're you're naming five iconic hank's roles do you put this is this anywhere near the list I don't think so. I mean, unfortunately, even Forrest Gump is on that list, right? You just have to, right. like, like, that's what I mean. Like, that really, you know, something that really jumps out. Like Dan, that is that blasphemous to you that we're not considering this one of his best roles? No, I, I understand what you're saying. If I were to, I mean, for the most part of the, in this movie, he's kind of playing himself in a lot of ways. He's himself, and he's also, like, the audience surrogate, kind of, right? Like, he's just, like, right. we're experiencing the prison through him. It's his we are him kind of right i think he does a masterful job of playing this character but in terms of you know is this an iconic role for him probably not and i don't want to say like he's good in this movie i don't want to, i don't want to take that away from him not that you know anybody is anybody cares at all what we say but like i'm not insulting him it's just that you're right like it's it's a more of a sum of its parts it's more about the ensemble which is the next thing i'm going to nominate this for best ensemble it's just it's about everyone it's not it's not like it's a tom hanks story it's a tom hanks character story but it's not really like, he's just the one who happens to be telling the story. Like, if, if it was, you know, Barry Pepper telling the story, it would basically be the same movie, right? Like, it'd just be, right? So, I don't know. Right, yeah, I don't think he stands out far and above anyone else in this movie. I think everyone is really bringing a lot of good work to it. Not, not in a way that's, that he does in, in, say, Forrest Gump, which is weirdly another ensemble cast, but he is, like, the focal point of that movie. You know what I mean? Everyone else is taking a step back, whereas everyone in this movie kind of takes a step forward and joins him you know what i mean yeah so so yeah I, i'm not 
I'm not too perturbed by not nominating him for this. Now, best fight? Does he get into a fight? He gets kneed in the balls by Wild Bill. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Wild Bill scuffle. But is that is that on par with, like, the 3D fight in Bachelor Party or Buzz and Woody versus the Misfit Toys in Toy Story? I don't think so. So we can skip that. Best dance scene? I don't think that he dances best party scene no best hanks outfit wardrobe i think it's cool to see him in the in the prison uniform guard but i don't think this is one of his most iconic or best outfits best death he does not die best line or best freakos they're in here there's one line like i feel like uh, of the memorable lines in this movie i don't know that they're his but there's one that i really liked that i wrote down which was this is not a good time john coffee not a good time at all as he's laying on the ground you know, I think that was maybe after he got kneed in the balls, and he's just like, yes. and that's when he gets healed. He's just like, basically like, not now, man, I'm in pain. I thought that was just like a, a very funny delivery. The soundtrack theme score? I think the score is pretty good, but I might be the only person to, to vote for that. Best or worst Hank's love story? I know that you love him uh, him with Bonnie Hunt in this, but Mike, how do you think this compares? Should we, should we nominate uh, Hank's and Bonnie Hunt here or no? No, I mean, this isn't uh, this isn't like Sleepless in Seattle. Yeah, it's basically right? like, can can the relationship beat him and Meg Ryan in three movies? And the answer is no. And right. then best non-Hanks actor, male or female, is there someone particular that stands out? Or I think I'm I'm happy leaving it just as best ensemble, but... Yeah, uh, I was gonna sort of single start singling people out, but everybody's so good. Like, I mean, all the powerful performances all sort of like, you know, I don't want to like say one over the other, but I mean, Dan, I don't know. Yeah, I'm kind of feeling the same way. Uh, if I was going to pick anybody, uh, it might be Doug Hutchinson because who's going to nominate him for anything else? But yeah, if you want to leave it up to ensemble, I think that's that's definitely um, that's fair. Cool. So I think we just have the uh, the two awards, but there are two big ones. There's the best ensemble and there's uh, best film. Oh, wait. And wait. Oh, we also have Gary Sinise. I was like, why is there a third one? But we also nominated Gary Sinise in Forrest Gump Apollo 13 and also The Green Mile because he's in this for a little bit. So, well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Oh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure having to talk about Mr. Tom Hanks or Mr. Tom Cruise or whatever else. Uh, so thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Mike, next episode of Hanks, you and I are going, we're going to get stranded on an island for Castaway. But between now and then, we have to go to, I don't know where, a beach, I think? I keep thinking there's a beach in this movie. Night and day for Cruise Club. So go check out Cruise Club, night and day. A date with Cameron Diaz, mm-hmm. apparently. And last week, we mentioned it earlier, uh, Valkyrie, Cruise Club, most recent episode of that came out last Friday, Valkyrie. So go check out Valkyrie, all 31 episodes of Cruise Club, and all 31 episodes of Hanks for the Memories at cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Come back next episode for Castaway or next week on Cruise Club for Night and Day. Go check out all nearly 1,500 podcast episodes at cageclub.me. And just, you know, say hi. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Dan Colonna. We'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. Not a good time, John Coffey, not a good time at all.